0: Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about rollback with two high-level USGA officials. Our guests are Mike Wan, the CEO of the USGA, and Thomas Pagel, the Chief Governance Officer. So on Wednesday, the USGA and R&A announced that they would institute a universal rollback of the golf ball starting in 2028 for elite competition and filtering down to the amateur game by 2030. One of the key revelations of this announcement is that the governing bodies expect the impact of the new ball to be substantially less on the average amateur's game than has been reported so far, and we'll get into some of those details. So if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I favor a rollback. In fact, I'd get behind a larger rollback than the one that the USGA and RNA have been intending to carry out here. But having Mike Wan and Thomas Pagel on this podcast at this moment, I think is an opportunity to pose to them some challenging questions to get their responses to some common criticisms of the rollback. So I'm hoping to represent not just my perspective on this issue, but also bring in the main counter arguments that I've been seeing, because I think it's important to subject the governing body's ideas to some scrutiny here. Now, before we get into my interview with Mike Wan and Thomas Pagel, I want to say a few words about our sponsor for this episode, Fat Cork. Fat Cork works exclusively with small family run grower champagne houses. These are producers who grow their own grapes. Grower champagne is expressive of a particular vineyard. It's made with care and often through methods that have been passed down through generations. Now, stuff like this makes for an outstanding holiday gift. This is a unique gift that you really won't see anywhere else. And one thing that Fat Cork offers in that vein is a champagne club. Giving club subscriptions is a really clever way to catch up on, on holiday gifting. Uh, I think people out there know how it goes, uh, you know, you get to the last minute and it's really good to have access to something like this, where you can just sort of show a receipt. Uh, so if you're in that position, this is a really good option. There are different tiers to fat corks champagne club, and each of these tiers has a name. So four bottles, a quarter is called the weekenders six bottles. Quarterly is called the Frequent Fizzers. And eight bottles per quarter is the Merrymakers. So just go to fatcork.com, check out these club tiers, and choose one of them for a great gift. Or you can just order a bottle or two for yourself. So, as a special deal for fried egg listeners, Fatcork is offering free shipping on any of their products with the code GOLF. They handwrite all gift notes on nice stationery, and a human will answer your call or email. So, check out Fatcork. And with that, here is my interview with Mike Wan and Thomas Pagel. All right, I am joined by Mike Wan and Thomas Pagel of the USGA. I know it's been a busy day for the two of you. You've both done a lot of talking so far. So uh, thank you so much for joining me and let's get right into it. You know, today was a uh, was a big day. Back in March, the governing bodies announced the possibility of a model local rule that uh, would roll back the golf ball just for elite levels of competition. And today, it was announced that the direction is more for a universal rollback. So, Mike, why don't we start with you? How did we get to this point? It, it even
2: goes back farther than that, Jared. If you go back a year before the MLR announcement we had announced an across-the-board ball at speeds between 125 and 127 miles an hour of club head speed in, in, uh, in conjunction with an MLR club. So we've definitely made some changes along the way. And as I, Thomas and I have said many times, uh, if you're going to call something a notice and comment period or an you know, areas of interest and have a comment period, you're going to get comments. And when you get quality feedback, and I would say even the feedback I didn't want to hear was quality feedback. It, it requires you to kind of think it through. So answering your specific question, um, when we were a year ago and came to the market, we, you know, we had, we believed from day one that one of our four core tenants was um, minimize any significant impact. And quite frankly, it was really have no discernible impact on the enjoyment of the game for the amateur, for the amateur uh, you know, recreational player. And um and so with a model local rule, we could really address distance specifically at the elite male level where distance was, it was most concerning. We could probably do that a little bit more uh, significantly than we could do across the board. And we could sort of leave the rest of the game uh, untouched, uh, which sounds great. See, it still sounds great when I say it to you. But um, when you go out and have those comments, it wasn't just tours, uh, but it was, you know, PGA of America, a couple of, couple of strong uh, manufacturers. Um, and even and even some individual consumer groups that came to us and, and said, hey, the, losing the magic between what the pros play and what the average uh, recreational player can play or wants to play. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in a pro-am and that person is playing the same game, same equipment, same hole as you, that difference is is part of the uniqueness that makes golf golf. And so I, I didn't I don't really want to argue that we just listened to that and realized that, that was really a universal, almost everybody's um most significant piece of comment to us was if you can figure out a way to address distance long term, but not do it in this model local rule split way, um, that would be our preference. So uh, and I remember saying to a couple of folks, including a couple of tours, you know that if I do this across the board, I've got to really reduce the severity of this because I'm not going to have any real significant impact on the recreational game. I'm going to have to take longer to get to market because I'm going to ask manufacturers to make ball changes across their line. Um, and, uh, you know, they, you know, they both knew that and liked that less severity, longer to marketplace was probably a good thing. So in answer to your question, where did we get there? Uh, we took a different path and in really listening to the marketplace on that path, it was clear to us and actually made clear to us directly in a couple of cases that if you're going to make a change on distance, um, our overwhelming preference would be to do so and keeping the game under one. Set of, uh, set of rules, set of regulations, if you will. And that's what got us to here. And then once you start talking about an across-the-board change, the first question you can have is, um, can the change be significant enough to matter, while at the same time making sure that you don't um, kill the momentum or excitement or, or or joining force of this game? And that's what this is. This, the outcome of this is really a delicate balance, if you will. It's a, it's finding the right balance to say, this would be significant enough to slow the pace of growth at the high at the high elite level uh, for quite a while. At the same time, you know, if the average recreational golfer moves their tee markers up three or four yards, a non-issue for them. So it um, doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean everybody has to like it, but to answer your question, that's how you kind of get from one end to the other. And even the folks that don't necessarily love everything about this outcome, the folks that really had a voice in this thing and really were pushing hard on no model local rule, see themselves in this, and they should, because it was their voices that really talked us back into this direction.
0: Thomas, could you take me into what actually is going to change when it comes to the testing of golf balls for uh, conformity with uh, USGA and RNA rules?
1: Yeah, Gary. what what we're talking about is updating the test conditions for what we call the overall distance standard, which is the the measure by which we govern or regulate golf balls. Uh, It's been in place for almost 50 years. It was first established in 1976. And And the test has never been a measure of success, never been a measure of scoring. It truly has been about how do we regulate golf balls to manage their distance or their efficiency or effectiveness when in the hands of the longest players in the game. When that was first established in 1976, uh, the late Frank Thomas did some research. That was a data set of one. Uh, There was a golfer at the time that was known to be a long hitter, and he hit a whole bunch of balls, and we arrived at 109 mile an hour swing speed. Uh, It's been updated several times since 1980, there were some small updates, and then again 2002. And in 2004, again, we stepped back and looked, and that 109 miles an hour was no longer reflective of the longest hitters at that time. So we updated the club head speed to 120 miles an hour. As we sit here today, 120 miles an hour, by the way, on our test, which doesn't uh, achieve a smash factor of 1.5, it's more of like a 1.47, the ball speed that's produced at 120 miles an hour is 176 miles an hour. So as we sit here today, we look at testing equipment at 176 miles an hour and step back. And that's not reflective of the longest hitters uh, of the game. And so we're going to update that to 183 miles an hour. Uh, We're also going to adjust the launch conditions. So we're going to go from a 10 degree launch angle to an 11 degree launch angle. Again, as players try and, and achieve more distance, they're looking for higher launch angles. So trying to reflect the longest golfers and also lowering the spin from twenty five twenty down to twenty two hundred. Again, trying to be more re- reflective of the conditions those longest players are trying to achieve. So, this really is about uh, ensuring that our testing standards are are relevant to the current game. And as as we look at, th- there's a lot of data you can look at. We've looked at the data the same over the last forty years, not only distance um, and and the amount of distance increases, but also how we measure or or look at. Uh, the longest players, and if you look in 2023, the average of the top 25 longest players on the PGA Tour, their ball speed was right around 183. So that's in 2023. You know, four years before we're going to implement this uh, in 2028. If if we go backwards, we didn't have ShotLink or robust data set in 2004. Um, But in 2007, when that was first available, the average of the top 25 longest players over the 2007 PGA Tour season was 176, which is how we measure today. So it shows the trend line of how we got here year over year, but it also shows that we've been consistent in how we've updated the standard over the years. Again, trying to regulate or manage the distance of a golf ball, um, not necessarily looking at measures of success or scoring.
0: Thomas, where does this come down to for the average player in terms of impact on their average distance off the tee?
1: Well, yeah, let's start with with the recreational golfer because that's, you know, the the audits, that's who we're speaking to. It's going to be five yards or less, right? So when we're looking at club head speeds and launch conditions of the average recreational golfers, uh, the average male recreational golfer is going to be right around three to five yards. Average recreational female is going to be closer to that one to three yard range. So as as swing speeds decrease, as spin increases, the impact to those recreational golfers is really going to be minimal. And so when Mike talks about, you know, the three yards, pick up the tees and move them forward, that's really what we're looking at. And the other thing is this is limited to drivers, right? Just given our launch conditions as recreational golfers, by the time you get to your 3 or hybrid, you're probably not going to notice at the highest level. Those players that achieve ball speeds of 183 or higher, which is what we're testing at, the impact's probably 13 to 15 yards. But we would still uh, uh, estimate that by the time they get to their five iron, given the launch conditions, they won't see a distance decrease from today. So a lot of people have been talking, you know, this is going to be 10 percent through the bag. That's just certainly not the case. We're increasing the test speed by about just under four percent. Um, And that's around the impact that we're going to have on golfers. But again, the recreational game, we really are looking at the driver. That's where the impact will be. And and, and another point for the recreational game is as we look at the current list of conforming balls that that we have posted today, about a third of those balls would meet the standard that we're going to put into effect in, in 2028. And so what we mean by that, we're not talking balls you see at elite level competitions. Uh, But certainly balls that are manufactured and marketed and played by recreational golfers will continue to conform in 2028 when this goes into effect and certainly in 2030 when it goes into effect for the recreational game.
0: So when it comes to balls that might not be affected by this new standard, we're sort of talking about the soft cover or low compression models of golf balls. Is that sort of what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, the two or three layer balls that have a different cover that aren't necessarily urethane, they just have different properties that will continue to conform.
0: Great. Now, Mike, in terms of what the USGA and RNA know about how average golfers feel about the potential of a golf ball rollback across the game, What sense have you gotten or what specific studies have you done to assess the general feeling about this prospect among the players who play the game recreationally?
2: Yeah, the difficult part of this, Garrett, is when you um, if you ask people, how do you feel about being shorter in a few years? We don't really have to do a study for that, right? And um, and what we've quickly learned in this sort of early weekend before we announced where some of the news got leaked is. You know the desire for a lot of people to kind of sensationalize this, and you know generate more clicks and more calls and more more craziness. And in today's world, it's easier to it's easier to believe the bad stuff uh, than the facts. So, as I've said a few times today, um, if you want to listen to the folks that'll tell you this is going to take twenty yards off your drive, then feel free to listen to them. It's not based on any kind of fact. It's you know it's uh, it's myth based. I mean, we're being even the different uh, data when we when we say zero to five yards to the average. Recreational golfer. That's uh, we took those estimates and took them to independent third party ball expert as well, and just said, "Hey, what are your uh, what are your ranges?" And they came back at our same ranges for that for an average tour player for the people generating the most ball speed. So um, the fact is, this is going to be. I- I'm a I'm a recreational golfer. I play a lot of golf. Um, I think I could tell you how far I hit a drive, but if I really had to pick the number, I wouldn't really probably be within eight yards of the truth, and I probably have never in the course of fourteen holes of driving. Had to drive the exact same yards each time. I understand the people that can. I've I watch them all the time and they play in a lot of our events. I'm just not one of them. So if you told me my drive went 242 or if it went 239, I'm not exactly sure I could tell the difference unless I knew the difference. Now, I'm not trying to belittle it. This is uh this is something we're doing to make sure that our, you know, the next generation and the generation after that inherit a game that's at least as healthy as the one one we did. But in the grand scope of this oh my gosh, you know, rollback. I mean, the rollback word itself generates all kinds of reaction. What we've said from the very beginning is we will not implement a plan that lessens the enjoyment of playing the game. If you don't think, you know, us together with 30,000 PGA uh, professionals and 2,000 LPGA professionals can manage a three yard difference on every golf course. And for that very front tee where there's nowhere to go, if that person's playing the right ball, as Thomas just said, that ball's not changing in 2028. So there's zero difference. So I think it's, and, and if the worst thing that happens in 2028 is everybody slides their tee box up four or five yards, including the back tee, move the back tee up 20 yards if you want. What we can't have on that back tee is room to keep going back over the next 20, 30, and 40 years. I've said this many times. If, if the tours around the world say, okay, you're going to reduce our yards by 10 yards, we're going to move our tees up by 12. Great. Right. We could care less what you do with your tees, what you do with your scoring. Uh, feel free. We just want to make sure there's room for this game to grow without asking every venue to grow. Imagine if baseball said to the Green Monster, "In the next ten years, you're going to probably have to move the Green Monster back, and if you can't, we'll find other venues." You know, just sports don't do that, and um, and so we um, we we're not going to save every venue that was that been built from the beginning of time. We get that, but at the same time, we um, we should respect the fact that one of the things this game is going to have to be in the next thirty to fifty years is sustainable. Uh, and and environmentally you know conscious, and um, this keeps us from getting into a place thirty or forty years from now where the game of golf is viewed in a way we we certainly wouldn't accept today
0: and I'd like to eventually get into those questions about sustainability, both financial and environmental, but first, and this is for Mike again, there are those who claim to be worried that this new rule will dampen the popularity of golf at the very moment when the game is experiencing a kind of surge it hasn't seen in a while. Are you worried about that prospect as well?
2: Uh, We worried about it through this whole process, you know, and anytime you're talking about change, it's why, you know, our changes are as minimal as they are to make sure that we didn't have that impact. Uh, I'm I'm not concerned. I wouldn't have launched something today that I thought had the potential to dampen that interest. Uh, Definitely would not have. Do I think we can swallow this change up uh, uh, pretty quickly, at least in terms of impact to the recreational golfer? Uh, 100%, I believe that. I think if anybody takes any bit of time and thinks that through, they will too. When you get out of the emotion of just the first word and you get into what specifically are we talking about, I think this is something that we'll uh, we'll certainly be able to address. I mean, for everybody who's telling us about how great the game is, do you think there's anybody who spends more time on the excitement of the game, both today and in the future, than the RNA and the USJ, we don't have members otherwise to focus on. We don't worry about ball contracts. We don't worry about member retirement programs. This is this is our business, and um, um, and you know nobody invests more in the growth of our game. In our case, in the states, in the RNA's case around the world, uh, than we do. This is uh, this is as exciting for us as it is for everybody else because you know, our, our name is United States golf association and United States golf being healthy has got to be priority one. Now, Thomas, getting
0: back to some of the specifics of the technology and its potential impact. First of all, you've, you've mentioned what the governing bodies expect the various impacts of this new ball to be on different swing speeds, different skill levels. First of all, where did you get that data how did you find all of that out
1: so our engineers and our scientists uh, have tested balls with with aerodynamic changes that that are consistent with with how we believe manufacturers would approach this um and we've tested them under sit- simulations to to meet these new conditions and we do find that the greater the higher swing speeds excuse me have a, a greater impact of that 13 to 15 yards and that as we get to the lower swing speeds, again, the recreational game, it's that that five and under. For the average PGA Tour player, it's probably in the nine to 11 yard range. And for the average LPGA or elite female, it's going to be in that five to seven range. And so this was about running simulations, but again, with, with balls that we have examples of, and then there's some extrapolating and some interpolating that our engineers and our scientists did to arrive at these numbers. And that was done both by the USGA, by the RNA. And as Mike said, uh, a third party industry expert who um who is very well known in in the industry and and as well as shared with the manufacturers and several manufacturers have agreed with the ranges in fact they arrived at at the same ranges on their own relative to their own equipment so it's all simulation based um but we're very confident in it
0: now in that vein there have been some claims out there that elite players will gain back any distance that they might lose under these new regulations pretty quickly how do you react to that
1: look this is not going to stop distance gains Uh, as we look back over the last 40 years um, we see a a pretty constant increase of distance about a yard per year in that time frame Uh, i'd expect that to continue moving forward there might be a a small period of time where it flattens out but then it'll it'll pick back up and distance will go back and we're okay with that this is not about stopping distance to mike's point this is about slowing the pace of distance, and so in 15 years from now, if we're right back to where we are now, we're okay with that. We might need to take further action, uh, but what that means is we're not going to be 15 yards further than we are today, which is the pace again that we've
2: seen. I think we can agree, Garrett, that whether we implement a change in 2028 or we don't, uh, players are going to chase distance as an advantage because if you can if you can achieve it, you keep it on the in, on the, on the course. It can, you can use it as an advantage. So we know that. In fact, one of the things we said from the very beginning we would not implement is some sort of governor on the ball that it falls out of the sky at three hundred twenty yards and drives just couldn't go farther than that. So sometimes when players say, "Well, just don't let it go any farther than it is right now," so you mean your drive or his drive? I mean, when are we going to when's it going to hit the fence and fall down to the ground? Uh, we don't want that. We we want this game to be about athleticism and drive and and trying to get better. So. Uh, I think to your original point, will people earn this distance back at 100 percent? How fast they'll earn that back? Nobody knows, including them. Um, But to Thomas's point, will it slow the pace of where we would where we would have been in 20 years with no change versus where we will be with this change? It will 100 percent slow that exactly how long and and how much to be determined. But it's um, this change has much more of a future vision to it than what's going to happen when people talk about this change. Today, they all are answering in today's terms. And what I'm gonna do and what we're gonna do, and, and we're looking at this more over a 20 30 and 30 year thirty-year period in terms of how it helps helps our game longer term.
0: This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast is brought to you by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. They have these great master fitters who provide an in-depth data-driven, I would say, tour-level fitting process, and they have access to an incredible number of hittable head and shaft combinations, as well as 60-plus brands. They use industry-leading technology like TrackMan and Sam PuttLab, and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry, so you actually get the clubs functioning as they're supposed to function. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player. This is not just for scratch players. Club Champion has proven that it can produce results as well for average golfers. Now, on a personal note, I've gone through Club Champion fittings myself, and aside from getting clubs that actually work for me, the big thing I appreciated about the process was how much I learned about my game and how much I learned about the kind of equipment that I should actually be using it was genuinely eye opening, and right now, given that we're talking about 10 yard margins here and there created by a certain golf ball, I often think to myself that if a lot of amateurs who don't hit the ball particularly far, maybe are on the lower end of the club head speed spectrum. If a lot of these amateurs went to get a real fitting like this, I think they would start to see some pretty significant gains that would make one ball or another seem, uh, you know, somewhat, somewhat marginal in its impact. So in any case, for fried egg listeners, this is the deal that club champion is offering right now. And until Christmas, you can use the code fried egg to get a $100 full bag club champion fitting or 50% off the cost of your fitting with the purchase of a club. So there's two options there. Full bag fitting, you can get that with the code, or if you get another type of more limited fitting, you can get 50% off that with the purchase of a club. So again, that's code egg, all one word. Mike, we've heard from various stakeholders, to use the terminology that the USGA likes to to use when it comes to this. We've heard from some stakeholders today, including ball manufacturers, the PGA Tour, and others, other big voices in the golf world. How do you feel generally about the uh, the feedback or the statements that have come out from those sectors so far?
2: Yeah, I'll give you three res- responses, and again, you know, this is i i it is not the first time I'd be accused of being an optimistic guy, but number one uh, I'm really um I'm glad that in almost all of those statements we've seen people point out that the process has been open iterative um that you know some of their comments have shown up in this final outcome, not all of them um I, but I'm glad that they're at least recognizing that this has been a pretty back and forth open process with real change coming after some of these notice uh, and comment periods, so that's one number two is. Um, it doesn't surprise me that the people that didn't get the exact change they wanted isn't implemented. Um, that it, you know that they're they're not all the way there. But if you read these different statements, or if you know what Thomas and I know, each of them have a slightly different perspective on what they think the right outcome should be, and they're certainly not like each other. Uh, even if you read two ball manufacturers, one of them said we really prefer the MLR, and one of them said we really want to thank the USGA and the RNA for not pursuing the MLR. So there's there's two ball manufacturers, significant players in the business having two points of view on, on a proposal. That, that's real. That's what happens when you have industry feedback. So so, so one is I'm, I'm glad they're to the open process. Two is I'm not surprised that it's not exactly the way we want. The third is that kind of comes out in some of these is we wish they just wouldn't have been this aggressive, which, you know, this is too much change at one time. And I'll just address that real quick to say, I understand if you come from a scope of I don't want my members or my players to have that much change at once. Can you please just make a lesser change and then evaluate it more frequently? Because we would rather in governance identify a problem, identify a solution, implement that solution, and then get out of the way for as long as you can. Give the game back and because a lot of interruption from the governing bodies isn't isn't our goal. Um, But you also have to think about this from all the other parts of the business. And what we know is it would not be reasonable or really prudent for us to say to manufacturers, we're going to make a small change that you're going to have to make across your product line. And then we're just going to do it a lot more often or potentially do it a lot more often. That sounds great in one meeting, a one set of one group of members, and sounds idiotic in another meeting with another group of members. And that's That's what governance is. That's listening through those things. So I understand the comment of we just wish you wouldn't have moved so far and everybody could just adjust to it so much easier. But if you're going to have a real impact on the long part of the game, you just have to look at it more often. You have to implement change more often. So be it. Um, But that wouldn't be realistic uh, for the governing bodies to essentially assess that on the on the manufacturer business. Our hope is, you know, if you're a player playing this game, you might go through this change once, but you don't go through this change multiple times in your in your career and uh, and the same thing for manufacturers. We, we want to be able to make a change and stay out of the way as long as we think we can and let the game be the game.
1: One other thing on the, the stakeholders, right? I mean, I think it's sort of today's culture and, and just where we are in the world, but everybody tries to create these divides and makes it seem like it's very divisive. I think the feedback around the process and sort of the respect for the process and the appreciation to participate shows, you know, this truly is a partnership As an industry, as a game, right? The PGA Tour and the USGA are great partners. We're great partners with the PGA of America, Uh, have deep friendships and relationships across both organizations. You look at the manufacturers, and it's not like we jump in, give them a a piece of research, and then wait six months to hear from them. Uh, Our team is working with their team on a weekly, if not daily basis, not only on current product but also future product as well. So that relationship, that working together, that partnership in this industry, it, it, it exists. And I think that the feedback we've heard so far is really reflective of that.
0: So a question for Mike, I know you can't predict the future, but what if the PGA tour were not to adopt this new ball? What would the golf landscape look like as a result of that?
2: Well, it would be exactly what the PGA Tour asked us to avoid. You know, when we went to the PGA Tour and said, "What if we created a different ball for for you and elite amateur competitions and that kind of thing?" And what if, you know, what if there was a one for you and one for everybody else? So um, I would be shocked by that response, given that that was the one thing they asked us not to do, which is to separate the two entities. So if they said, "You know what? We're going to go our own way. You go your way." That's uh, that's exact. That's the exact opposite of their number one piece of feedback. I like this and I think to Thomas's point, you know, we've uh, you know, Jay, Seth, David Ableys, Chip Brewer, I mean, David Barr, these are these are friends. These are people that I'm glad are in the business because these are leaders that I that I like and I trust. Um, and um, and as as, as i as as they've said to me many times, as I said to them, as one person said to me, I'm gonna push you until you don't let me push you anymore. And then when you tell me it's over, we're gonna go win. And uh that's that's you know, that's how we're that's how we're viewing this. And you know, we we took a long process. Um, maybe longer than some would like. Uh, maybe longer sometimes than some even inside our buildings would like. Um, we made a lot of changes. You know, when we started this, Garrett, we were 100% in the belief that we were going to test balls going forward when what we called optimum flight conditions. We would look at a ball, figure out what flight conditions maximize that ball's flight, and that's how we test that ball. Then the next ball would come in, and we'd optimize its launch conditions, and uh, we loved it because it's doable in today's technology. After our first um, area of interest with manufacturers. They pointed out for us that, well, that's doable and we understand it. Let me explain to you the, the pain that causes an R&D process, the extra expense that causes. And so would you guys please look at whether or not it's worth whatever yard or two you think you could de- develop by ball? And I remember I remember sitting in a meeting and I think it was Thomas and his team taking us through that. And we said, that's so logical and that's so fair. Let's move on. Even though for years we were convinced that was a better way to go. So, um, you know, if you're going to go through this open dialogue process, um, sometimes, in, in like in our case, sometimes something like optimal flight condition we really believed in. You're going to move on from, and I can tell you that there's definitely manufacturers and tours and associations that have things they really believed in, but they didn't get it kind of in the final thing. But at the same time, they did certainly get things that uh, that were in it. addressing CT creep on a driver was not part of our original premise. Uh, the tours, and quite frankly, um, uh, uh, tours and associations, and a, and a couple of manufacturers asked us to take a closer look at CT creep, at face rebound creep, and see if we could address something before it actually got played in the competition. But Rather than just testing on site, what can you do to make sure that's addressed early on? So to their credit, they created a process and quite frankly, an outcome that wasn't even part of our original vision.
0: Now, Thomas, the main rationale for the new ball rule, at least, I mean, maybe not the main rationale from the perspective of the governing bodies, but one of the points that really is persuasive to me personally is that distance gains have caused golf courses to lengthen and expand, and that this trend is a threat to long-term sustainability of the game. This is clearly happening at courses that host elite men's tournaments. I don't think anybody can deny that. But many golfers I've spoken to are skeptical that this issue exists at average courses, everyday courses that don't host PGA Tour events or major championships. So Thomas, what can you say to persuade me or someone else that distance gains are a problem for courses outside of the PGA Tour and men's major rotations?
1: I I I think the first thing is we have to look at how you define elite male competitions or elite competitions, Uh, this is not about uh, a single tour, right? There are elite competitions held across the globe at thousands of courses. Whether you think of the collegiate game, you think of state amateurs, you think of state opens, you think of national championships outside of the U.S. Um, There are elite competitions competitions played everywhere. And there's a strong correlation that you can see. And and this is part of the, the distance insights report that people can go find on our website. There's a graph that shows a strong correlation between increase in hitting distances and increase in course lengths. And there's another uh, uh, study in there that shows the top 100 courses, only 18 of which have hosted a major at some point, all top 100 follow that same trend line. So it's this stigma of you know championship golf course or wanting to host an elite event that might not be a tour event, might not be a U.S. Open, but yet they want to be able to support the game. Our green section recently did a study. Uh, with our Allied Golf Associations, so the state golf associations, and looked at an inventory, the inventory of golf courses relative to the length where they play their state events, their state amateurs, their state opens. And if distance were to continue to increase at the pace that it is today, in 30 years, they would be down to an inventory of two to five percent of the golf courses across each state where they could actually conduct these events. So this is a real issue that's facing the game, and it is. Um, As distances increase, and again, you talk about one yard year over year, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you step back 20 years from now, that's 20 additional yards, and that could mean up to 200 yards of additional length on a golf course. That comes with a cost. Like We are one of the only sports that says, if you have things change, go ahead and change your venue to accommodate, Uh, and we want to alleviate that burden because that burden comes with the real cost, both uh, economic whether it's moving bunkers, whether it's building new tees, but also environmental. That's not the right message for the game that we should be increasing our footprint because we have people hitting it longer. And so this is, again, to Mike's point, This is if there's a golf course that's been passed over in the modern era, this isn't going to bring that golf course out of that pile and put that back in. But what it's going to do is it's going to slow the pressure, slow the burden put on golf courses, so we're not adding other golf courses to that list. At the pace that we're doing today.
0: Thomas, I want to press on this again. You mentioned that the, the range of golf courses affected by elite men's tournament play is maybe broader than many people think. It's not just the PGA Tour. It's not just the majors. It's also these state amateur hosts or what have you. Point taken. But what about courses that don't do any of that, that don't host really any kind of elite tournament or have no aspirations of doing so. Have those courses also been affected by these overall trends toward more distance and more advanced equipment?
1: You, you certainly see examples through through golf courses that don't host these elite competitions that again are just in their minds trying to keep up with the modern game, these mom and pop courses that aren't going to host anything, but they don't think that having a back tee at 5,800 yards is actually enjoyable for the recreational golfer. So they're looking to find land. They're looking to build new tees. They're looking to add bunkers to try and add a challenge to to meet the standards that golfers today uh, are looking for relative to their playing of the game.
2: Jared, I was just driving back from New York and Scott Langley, who's our, uh, you know, former tour player, works at the USGA, head of our player relations experiences called me and he was out in Vegas with the college coaches show and he had had presented on this distance uh, this morning just to give him the and and I said well what were the conversations like during the break and one of the things he said caught me he said Mike the number of coaches who said to me um, our home course is a great course to practice you know our home campus course can't play an event there I just you know just can't play a college event on that course anymore Um, and and so we sort of just we sort of just say that nod yes and move on. You know, here's a golf course built for college or right next to a college campus. In fact, we can't play an event there anymore. It's fine. You know, we just move on. We'll find another one in town. But once we go 30, yards, 30 years into the future and maybe 30 yards into the future, how many fewer choices do they have for college events? Right? In our case, you might find it strange, but junior amateur courses? Are getting tougher to find. I mean, we have junior amateur courses that are looking for 270 yard carries for the for the bunkers, and um, you know, you're just you're, you're talking about young kids generating ball speeds at a higher level, and and so uh, and and we we always think about this as a U.S. thing. Remember, this is happening all around the world in countries all around the world, uh, in a lot of places where simply saying work it out, find yourself some more land, uh, or figure out how to get more out of the land you're in um, is not only a difficult task. It may be governmentally challenged, you know, to actually do that kind of thing. And so um, I always find a strong when somebody says, well, that's not a problem on my course or it's not a problem. You're, at, you're talking to me about today and today's world. I'm asking you to think about 30 years from now and a 30 years from our world and how many more courses, because I'll ask anybody in their hometown, can you think of a great old venue that used to hold some amazing things that doesn't anymore? And they'll rattle off a couple. I'm like, well, if the whole world, if the, if the high end game is 30 yards longer Over the next 30, how many more of those courses will we rattle off in your town? And, you know, like I said, football wouldn't do that. They wouldn't just move past a bunch of venues and baseball doesn't do that. So we've got to um, we've got to care enough about future generations to not hand them this this challenge.
0: Given the scale of that issue and given the associated costs, will a five percent reduction really make a dent?
2: That's a good question. And it's a fair question. I said this this morning, and I'll and I'll consistently say it, and it's unfortunately turned out to be true. I'm going to come back to a computer that has as many emails saying, I can't believe you just did that, to the same number of emails that says, I can't believe that's all you did. Um, You know, that's governance. And when we talk about an across-the-board change, we simply couldn't do whatever we thought was right at one end and let the rest be. I mean, we have to govern for the overall game first, and we did in this case. Um so you know you go back to Thomas's point I don't think it brings a lot of courses back into play who are no longer in play but if this change keeps us at this general distance for the next 15 or 20 years and so wherever we are today is kind of kind of what we're dealing with in 15 or 20 years that feels like more than worth the effort
0: Thomas there was some material in the press release from the governing bodies today about a continued interest in driver head Regulations. Uh, could you tell me more about that? Mike referred to uh, CT creep earlier. Yeah. I think probably a lot of people out there don't know what that means. Um, so what what is what is the USGA? What is the RNA looking
1: at here? So so as Mike explained, the CT creep we're going to address starting this year. Um, and the CT creep is really you have you have a driver that conforms meets the the spring like effect test or the the CT test we have. Which measures how quickly a ball bounces off the club face. But yet after you know not many hits, all of a sudden it can creep over that conformance number. Um, and so we're gonna start testing clubs. If 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 a club is submitted that's close to the conformance number, we're not gonna render a decision on that club and add it to the conforming driver list. We're actually going to uh, request more models and we're gonna fire with a cannon fire balls at that club face 150 times to see what the number is. So we just this is about. Uh, trying to ensure that the product before it ever gets in the hands of the longest players um, remains conforming. And that's not just important to us. It's important to the players because if they're winning, having success, they really want to know that they're doing it with with conforming equipment. But it's also about um, adding uh, additional tests for the future, right? We don't know what composites are next, what metals are next if ct creep can be designed into a product we don't want that the manufacturers don't want that the tours don't want that and so this will help be a proactive measure against that specific topic and then we also reference our our desire just to more generally look at the driver right the forgiveness of of the driver um in 2022 as as part of the area of interest we issued uh we talked about a model local rule for a driver where we are going to investigate lowering ct or that spring-like effect and lowering MOI or the forgiveness. Uh, the reality is, as we began to to look at that, it gets really, really challenging. There there are workarounds that manufacturers can get through, just changing CG and doing a few other things, to where you can't just focus on a driver. In order for it to be impactful, you actually have to go down into three woods, five woods, hybrids, in some cases, irons, for it to be effective. So we're sitting here looking at a model local rule that could potentially have people changing out. Uh, four or five clubs out of their bag and that was just untenable that's unachievable uh, especially if you're looking at a model local rule across the elite game which as we talked about is not defined to one tour and so you know we set that to the side but we know that that discussion continues we hear it from players we hear it from others um saying it's really the driver that we should be looking at or we should be looking at the driver as well and because that conversation's out there, we don't want to be blind to it. And so we're going to continue to investigate, are there things that, that we could do with the driver you know, around that forgiveness um, so that golfers aren't necessarily swinging as hard as they can at it and, and getting the results that they're getting? Uh, we don't know what that would look like. Frankly, we have no idea what timeline that could be. Uh, what we issued today is not a formal area of interest. It's just a recognition of the community that we know it's important to people. Uh, and that's the role we play. Uh, And so we're going to continue to look at that and see if there's a solution for some point in the future. So Mike,
0: when you look at the modern driver, what do you think are some of the issues with it? How would you like to see things change in that area potentially?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I would say issues with it. I would just say in the hands to your, to Thomas point in the hands of the, of the fastest ball speed players in the world, there is not a lot of downside from missing the center. Uh, and if you just jump back, you know, 20, 25 years ago, um, you know, a, a miss hit was was significant enough that standing on the 18th tee with a creek on the right or left, you had to think about, you know, there was there was more to think about than how hard could I could I swing it? And and even in the younger ages, it wasn't just about swing as hard as you can and we'll figure out the rest less by uh, the rest later. But we don't really have a good answer for that, Garrett. And, and I think what we're essentially saying in that paper and that when what we announced today is, That's an area we're still going to have to assess. One of the things we learned through this whole area of interest and notice and comment period is when you tell people what you're thinking about, you get a lot of insights from others about how you might do it. Now, you have to kind of weed through some of the crazy. um, But the reality of it is telling people kind of something we're really perplexed by tends to to, uh, unveil some others that maybe thought their idea was crazy. But when we get in front of us, we really start thinking it through. So Um, We just don't know that going back all the way back to the beginning, talking about the recreational golfer, the real problem we have on drivers is if we were going to make a driver that had a significant reduction in, in, uh, in forgiveness, enough to really make a difference in, in the hands of elite player, that driver would be crushing from an amateur game, excitement, performance, enjoy the game. So um until we kind of figure out a better model, we we can figure out a you know a driver or a three wood or even a rescue club that that gets a, that that changes it quite a bit for an elite player. Um, but bringing that across the board and at this point, kind of trying to stay with the across the board theme um, is unrealistic and just the wrong thing to do for the game. So we won't go there. But uh, we're not uh, we're not detoured. We're just we just don't have the right answer yet.
0: So Thomas, these questions around the driver bring to mind a separate set of concerns about how the modern game has evolved. So far, we've talked mainly about long-term sustainability, golf course footprint, that area of concern. But another one is skill. What Mm -hmm. skills are being rewarded and what skills are kind of slipping underground right now at the elite levels of the game? Could I get some thoughts from you on what the governing body's goal is when it comes to emphasizing certain skills or bringing back certain skills in the way the game is played by the best players.
1: Yeah, look, I, I think and we've been very clear on this since we issued the, the distance report. We, we believe the game is at its best when a variety of skills are needed to determine success. Uh, and, and we have seen certain skills begin to um, uh, become more important than others. Uh, And that's a concern, right? Like, how can we help the game try to find that balance? Um, And and today certainly will be a start of that, but it's not going to solve it totally. And and we recognize that. Um, But if it does help the variety of skills, we think that's important. But the reality is, I think Mike mentioned this earlier, you look at tours or tournament organizers of elite competitions across the globe, uh, they can set up the golf course in certain ways to demonstrate or have certain skills come through. And we don't control that. And that's okay, um, but for those that that uh, share the view that it's important for a variety of skills to to determine success, uh, we want to be able to help support that for sure.
0: Now back to you, Mike. These changes around the ball, the the timeline that we're looking at right now, is you know. It's 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 not out of this decade, but but there's plenty of time I you know, I often I I look at uh, 2030 and I consider how old I'm going to be or how old my kids are going to be. And it starts to seem like a long time. Uh, And that's 2030 is when these changes will uh, likely come into effect for the amateur game. 2028 is more what's being targeted for elite competition. Um, So why is there this much time between the announcement and the implementation? And what do you think can be or should be achieved in those years?
2: Yeah. So the first on the why it's, it's to be fair to the game and the and to the people who are part of it. It's uh, you know, we may want to go faster. Um, but I think when we make a change like this across the board, that affects a lot of people's businesses. We need to be cognizant of the time it takes to do that. Right. I think we need to be cognizant of the, of the people that have inventory and retailers that have inventory and people that have garage inventory. And so uh, let's, Let's, you know, as uh, as my father used to always say, it's never too late to do the wrong, to do the right thing, uh, but doing the right thing too quick can, can sometimes be wrong. So I, um, you know, I, I was born with a lot of skills. Patience wasn't one of them. So this, you know, this is harder for me probably than it was for, for many. But to me, I would rather make sure we were protecting, you know, we're protecting the game through adjustment. Than feeling like we have to throw anybody into an electrical shock to get to adjustments. So yes, this is going to take a while, and yes, it's fair to critique the pace in which this change will come into play. Um, just like it's fair to critique, maybe we should have done this five or ten years ago. That's fair critique too. But um but the most important thing is that we are that we're we're willing to make adjustments to the game that we think can be that can be right. Uh, long term and i think this is exactly what the recreational uh, uh, side of the stakeholders asked for and exactly what the manufacturing side of the business asked for in order to do this in a right way and not cause more stress anxiety and quite frankly unnecessary financial st- uh, strain um because of the change and we thought that was more than fair like i said not every input makes it to the final output um but the ones that we think quite frankly we uh, we can get over ourselves and not be twenty twenty-six, but be twenty-eight if we think we're actually uh if we're actually listening to quality feedback. And um, you know, sometimes two years seems like forever, but in the grand scope of things, it's not much as long as you get to a better place.
0: Thomas, would you expect that a new set of regulations around the ball might be necessary when it's twenty thirty-five or twenty forty-five? Would you expect this to be kind of a thing that happens at regular intervals? Because as you mentioned earlier, the official distance standard has been changed various times throughout history. This is not the first time that something has been altered in that formula. So do you think this is going to be an an ongoing
1: kind of change? Uh, This will become, I mean, it is part of long-term management of of distance, right? To, To Mike's earlier point, uh, we don't know at what pace or what timeline distance will continue to to grow post-2028. Um, but we believe, as d- does the RNA, that it will continue to grow. And there will be a point in time where we're back to where we are today uh, and uh, we'll we'll need to consider further action. And so I, I fully expect that to be the case. When that will be, tough to put a timeline on it. Uh, don't believe it's going to be 2035. Um, you know, as Mike mentioned earlier, part of our goal was really to have um, meaningful impact and minimize disruption. Uh, and so we believe that the the change being proposed will have a meaningful enough impact to spread out the wave of change to where there'll be a long enough time horizon before the governing bodies have to take further action. Because if it's 2035 when we're taking further action, we really haven't given the game that much time to adjust from this change. And uh, we certainly want to avoid that.
0: Say we can project ourselves forward to the 2028 us open when this new ball presumably if everything goes as planned is being used by players in competition i'm not sure which course is hosting the 2028 us open but uh i know i know it's been selected uh, i
2: can tell you but i'm not sure if we've announced yeah oh
0: it's 2028 one of the few years that's not i I think it's there but in any case i'll I'll look it up Uh, i know where we're going
2: i just don't know if i've told everybody
0: oh (laughs) yeah okay um in any case Say this ball is in play, yeah. what does success look like if we're watching that tournament on t v what might be different, and what are we going to be looking for
2: Here, if, I, if 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 i'm right and you can put whatever asterisks next to if Mike is right, I think people will be playing this ball earlier than twenty twenty eight i i I really believe there's going to be people on tours playing a new ball in 2020. when you when you unleash thousands of the best engineers in the world on a new standard that then have four years to do it. They're going to be creating new technologies, new excitement, new. And they're going to start doing ball testing with players and players are going to say, I want that one. And um, so I would be shocked if we didn't see balls in him play. The real answer to your question is in 2028, if we're at the U.S. Open, a success for me is we won't be talking about a ball. Because I don't think it really matters if the guy steps up and hits a 226 yard drive or a 239 yard drive if it's the longest drive of the day on that hole it's still impressive i mean tiger woods was impressive to me in 2000 and he wasn't hitting the ball 327 that rory might have hit last last year when you're it's relative to the rest of your peers it's relative to what's what's capable i i feel really confident that come 2028 we'll almost go what was the big deal now we might be playing the course a little shorter than we would have been playing it in 2027 we might feel differently about uh, about certain holes um But I I feel fairly confident when the best best in the world have time to dial in a new ball um, and then that ball is going to play, if you're not careful, you'll forget it happened.
0: By the way, the 2028 U.S. Open is going to be held at winged foot. That has been announced. And so I'm sure there will be some interesting comparisons to make between the 2028 U.S. Open and the U.S. Open that Bryson DeChambeau won at his biggest and burliest. So... uh, Distance will certainly be part of the discussion uh, at that tournament and at many tournaments in the future. So, thank you to both of you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, thank you, Garrett. appreciate it. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Ruchus Thank you, Matt. So if you've been enjoying the Friday at Golf Podcast, if you like what we're doing here, if you appreciate the content, then one big thing that I'd like you to check out, especially now that it's the holiday season, is Club TFE. This is our membership. Annually, it's $120. And what this membership delivers to you is exclusive content, like really thorough course profiles with great photography and great images from Matt Rusius and Cameron Hurtis. You'll get the weekly design notebook feature, which tells you everything that's going on in the world of golf course architecture. You also get a number of benefits when it comes to the Friday Pro Shop, an ongoing discount in the Pro Shop, and you get early access to Friday Golf events. So I would highly recommend that if you are enjoying the podcast, that you see what we're doing with this membership, because I think it's aligned really well. So, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership to see details about Club TFE, and we hope to see you in there. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon.